Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you please turn in the back of your Psalters as we continue our series through the doctrines of the Heidelberg Catechism. We will continue uh, looking at what our Catechism says on Lord's Day 25 on the bottom of page 53 in the back of your Psalters. So page 53 in the bottom, Lord's Day 25 section on the sacraments. Since then, we are made partakers of Christ and all of his benefits by faith only. Whence doth this faith proceed? Answer, from the Holy Spirit who works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and confirms it by the use of the sacraments. What are the sacraments? The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals appointed of God for this end, that by the use thereof he may the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel, namely that he grants us freely the remission of sin and life eternal for the sake of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Are both word and sacraments then ordained and appointed for this end, that they may direct our faith to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. For the Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that the whole of our salvation depends upon that one sacrifice of Christ, which he offered for us on the cross. How many sacraments has Christ instituted in the new covenant or testament? Answer, two, namely, holy baptism and the holy supper. Well, beloved congregation of the Lord, as we progressed through the various doctrines of the Heidelberg Catechism, it has been a wonderful privilege to focus upon those main and plain things in the word of God, the nature of our sin and misery, how we are all condemned by our sins before a holy God. And we must come to know that terrible condition, to know our misery in order that we would seek deliverance. Deliverance through the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, our mediator and savior. And now we come to a part of the catechism which specifies the role of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. What is the role that these things have to the Christian who is delivered from his sins and miseries? A very important question. We have to recognize from the outset that to discuss the sacraments and their proper nature, their proper role, their proper use, it immediately involves us in controversy. Controversy not only with those groups that we would not recognize as Christians who corrupt even the very heart of the gospel, but even 
those whom we regard as brothers and sisters in the Lord, sometimes even our own family members who have different convictions than that which the Reformed Church holds. Even Zacharias or Sinus, he uh, had to deal with a certain measure of controversy about the sacraments. He was not a polemical or a controversial figure by nature, but he became so because he wanted to be so very clear about what the Word of God teaches. And so as you read his catechism here, you're going to see that he's wanting to be so very clear we ought to be clear as well. You see, everything in the Word of God is true. Everything in the Word of God is important. And certainly where we come to those aspects of our worship and our life as Christians that involve baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are important to the Lord and must be important to every Christian. And so as we enter into this part of the of the series. I hope this is not academic or speculative or a cause for pride that we have the answer or a cause that we would disparage those who dissent from the Reformed faith at this point, but rather that we would hold fast unto the truth once for all delivered unto the saints because it is glorifying to God and because the good and the unity of the church is found only within his truth. And so I hope you recognize that it's important that we situate this discussion of the sacraments within the whole context of the Bible. If we're going to rightly understand baptism and the Lord's Supper, I want you to see it as flowing out of a whole theology of salvation, which we call covenant theology. Covenant Theology. Now you might ask the question, well, what is covenant theology? Well, it is simply this. It is the conviction that God deals with his church and people by means of his saving covenant, the covenant of grace. And if we rightly understand the covenant of grace, not only will we be brought to an understanding about how the Lord saves sinners? We will also come to see how to understand how all the different parts of the Bible relate to one another and how all the different aspects of the life of the Christian relate to one another. It really is the binding thread of the whole message of the Bible. If you would despise covenant theology, then you will unfortunately be held back in your understanding of the word of God. On the other hand, a proper understanding of covenant theology, this will help you immensely, both in knowledge of the mind as well as the worship and love and faith of the heart. Hugely important, the covenant of grace. And while it isn't talked about at length in our, uh, our catechism in Lord's Day, um, Lord's Day 25 there, what you do see is that it is reference. How many sacraments has Christ instituted in the New Covenant or Testament to namely Holy Baptism and the Lord's Supper? Now, I think that as we progress in this series, considering 
sacraments in general and then the specifics of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we're going to have so many occasions to discuss what is the nature of the new covenant that it is profitable for us to begin with a section of the word of God that deals with it explicitly and clearly. I think that Romans chapter 11 will help you more than any other part of the word of God to get a grasp of what we speak about in terms of covenant theology. And at any rate, it is certainly a profitable and interesting portion of the word of God in its own right. So I trust that even those who may not have joined us for their previous parts of the series and may not be with us later on, that it will serve you as you meditate upon what the word of God says here. Now, by with the Lord's help, I wish to focus in the first place upon verse 27. Verse 27, Romans 11. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. This is my covenant, un- covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. The Lord's help, I'd like to consider the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. And we'll see three things from this chapter. First, something of the meaning of this covenant. Second, the intention or the purpose of this covenant, what it is for. And in the third place, we will see its implications. Its implications. So the covenant of grace, its meaning, its purpose, and its implications. Now, the word that's translated covenant here is diatheke. Diatheke. And has in view a, an agreement between two parties, but one that is sovereignly administered, one that comes out of the authority and sovereignty of God in particular. It is an important word, while not often used in the New Testament. It appears in very important places, And it is a translation of the word in the Old Testament, which is barren, barren. That's the word for covenant, which occurs hundreds and hundreds of times and, and is extremely important for understanding the whole theme of the Old Testament. And here it is used in reference to the message of the Apostle Paul. Now, he is speaking about the covenant of God as it especially concerns the controversy that he is addressing in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of this book of Romans concerning this matter of the Jews. You see, as you know, when the Lord Jesus came, he was born as a Jew. He was born to a Jewish mother of the seed of David. And while some of the Jewish people accepted him as their Messiah, and they were the very first Christians, subsequent to that, what you have is that the the greater number of the Jewish people reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And a great number of Gentiles come into that new church. 
that new church instituted by the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so the question becomes, how is it that we are to make sense of this? Is the religion of the Jews a false religion? Is Jesus perhaps not really the Messiah if the great mass of the Jews reject him? Well, in various ways, Paul rejects that and refutes that that, um, accusation against Jesus Christ and the church in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And he does it in various ways and various arguments. And here in verse in chapter 11, he is, as it were, bring all those arguments to bear. Ultimately, the climactic conclusion of his argument is that there is yet a plan for the Jewish people that involves their salvation. Verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And that was the quotation, of course, that we read from Isaiah 59. Slightly modified by the apostle to make a particular emphasis, but the the meaning is very clear. The Lord Jesus is the deliverer. He is the one who came to save sinners from their sins. He is the one who will turn away ungodliness and work repentance in the hearts of sinners. And he is the one who has come to bring about a covenant of forgiveness. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Now there's various ways this has been understood, but the overwhelming majority in the Reformed tradition, and one that I hold to without reservation, is that this is speaking of a future conversion of the Jewish nation. That indeed the Lord has a plan for the physical descendants of Abraham that involves their turning unto the Lord and embracing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now where this will take place and how this take place and whether it involves every single descendant of Abraham according to the flesh, well, these things God knows. But... As we work through this chapter, I trust you will see that the whole argument of Paul doesn't hold together unless you understand that. Paul is making an argument about the future salvation of the Jews. And to make this argument, he is citing this principle of covenant. The covenant which the Lord has made. And from just what I've said so far, I hope you can discern the nature of this covenant, what we call the covenant of grace. It is a covenant of salvation. It concerns the forgiveness of sins. It concerns the most important problem that anyone could possibly have, that they are alienated from God, that they are deserving of hell. Well, here is the covenant of grace. This is what provides the solution. And I can say this as well, just from what I've read here, that the very focal point, or we could say the very substance of this covenant, is Jesus Christ. He is the deliverer, and he is the one who has come to bring about the saving grace of this covenant. He is the one who has come 
in order to turn sinners from transgressions and to bring about the forgiveness of sins through his shed blood. And the other thing that I think we ought to be able to see from this is that this covenant of grace did not begin with his coming into the world. Did not begin merely with his coming into the world. For it is the very same covenant which the Lord has had with his people from the very beginning of of his redeeming work in the Old Testament. Now, for that, let me just read for you something that is found in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 17 Verses 5 to 7, this is something that the Lord said unto Abraham, the father of the Jews, according to the flesh. And this is where he gives Abraham his name in Genesis 17, verse 5. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations Have I made thee? And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. A pivotal point of redemptive history. The Lord binds himself in covenant unto Abraham and brings these wonderful promises to be a God unto them. And this covenant is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice something that you can read from Luke chapter 1 from a man by the name of Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist. Now, when he held his son John the Baptist in his arms, what happened was he prophesied through the Holy Spirit about the coming of the Messiah. And what he said in Luke chapter 1, verse 72, is that the Messiah comes to perform mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So what was the covenant which Christ came to fulfill? Well, it was the very same covenant which was given to Abraham. And that is the perspective very much of what Paul is talking about. As you see our verse, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. And then he goes on to say, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for The Father's sake. The Father's. Speaking especially of Abraham and the other patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob and so forth. Those promises given unto the Father's, 
they are now being fulfilled and realized in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and ultimately his salvation of them at a future time. Now, I make this point very precisely because it's important that we understand that this covenant is one. It is one. There are not two covenants of grace when it comes to the substance of it, of the salvation which is found in the Lord Jesus. No. Those of the old covenant, as it's called, the old covenant administration before the coming of Christ, they looked ahead to the full realization of that with the coming of Christ, and they looked ahead in faith. We, after the coming of Christ, look back. Look back onto the coming of our Deliverer. But where they are held together so completely in Scripture, then the only way to say it is that there is ultimately one covenant. They are both one, old and new, in their promise and in their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. So some of our theologians would say, Christ, he is the substance of the covenant of grace. Whatever may change about the Lord's dealings with his people, it is always about Christ and always in Christ that the Lord deals with his people. So I make this point in the first place. The meaning of this, well, this is the agreement the agreement whereby Christ is provided as a mediator and as a savior unto his people. And it is one. But next, I want to speak something about its purpose. What is the purpose of this covenant of grace? Well, we, in order to understand that, I think it's profitable to look at how this argument is developed throughout this chapter. What is it that... Um, Paul is in the first place addressing, he's addressing the problem. How is it that Christ can be the Messiah? How is it that God's covenant can be fulfilled if the great number of the Jews reject him? Well, go to the first part of this chapter and look with me at the first five verses of Romans 11. Look at what he's saying here. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Wot ye not that the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Well, this is the first answer that Paul gives. Why is it that God's covenant is 
holding firm? Why is it that it hasn't been set aside just because a majority of Jews rejected Jesus Christ? Well, because the purpose of the covenant, the intention of it, was in order to save his elect, the remnant according to the election of grace. Now, here the context is especially that portion of the Jewish people which are chosen by God from eternity past to receive eternal life. Now, Paul cites himself as an example. He says, how can you say that all the Jews have rejected? I myself am an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, and I have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a believer in the Savior. And likewise, he cites another example from their own history. Their own history in the days of the prophet Elijah, back hundreds of years uh, before when the northern kingdom had gone into apostasy and they were worshiping the idol Baal and they were tearing down the altars of the Lord. That prophet Elijah ran away unto a mountain by himself and pled before the Lord and said, I alone am left. And the Lord had to say, no, you may not be able to see them, but there are yet 7,000, 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's an important text for it's where we get the idea of the invisible church. The invisible church. What is the invisible church? Well, the church, in this sense, is those who are chosen by God unto eternal life, those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who do not, do not pollute themselves with the sins of idolatry and other things that separate you from the Lord. Instead, they repent of their sin and walk in true holiness for they are born again by the Holy Spirit. But not all those who claim the title of church are part of this invisible church. Not all who are of Israel are true Israel. Not even where it concerned that people of the Jews. And so Paul is saying here that the ultimate purpose of the Lord's saving covenant was always the salvation of God's chosen ones. That is the very apple of God's eye. That is the very purpose for this whole world existing, that he save a people unto his own glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we, ought, we do well to remember that, that the invisible church of the elect is that which God has accomplished salvation in Jesus Christ, that which he is applying salvation to. And those who have not the marks of God's elect, who have not faith, who have not repentance, they can take no true comfort from the Lord's covenant. Notice how he goes on to speak of this. He says there in verse 7, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear unto this day. And David said that their table be a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them 
Let their eyes be darkened, and they that they shall not see, and bow down their back alway. A terrible judgment upon the Jewish people that rejected the Lord Christ. I think where it refers to the table there in verse 9. Let their table be their snare. It's referring to the table of the altar. Really all of the privileges of worship and of sacrifice under that old covenant economy that were designed to point them unto Christ. They ultimately became a snare for they rejected the one that all these things were pointed to. And so we have to keep these things in balance, congregation. We have to understand that if we're to have a right view of the Lord's covenant, it can never, never bring comfort to those who are unrepentant and unbelieving. Only those, only those who bear the marks of the Lord's grace, who have that testimony of the Lord's work in their heart and have fled unto mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only they are those who receive the grace of God's covenant. But if we speak of not only the meaning and the intention of this covenant, its purpose for existing, we are still left with its implications. And really, the broader implications of the covenant are really the the main part of this chapter. And I think if we pay close attention to these broader implications, what I'll especially call the implications for the visible church, I trust that we will get somewhere in understanding something of the covenant of grace's implications also for the sacraments. Now, I think it's important to see that Paul, he's structuring his argument. First, he refutes the argument of the one who is despising Christ by saying, well, you need to understand the Lord has been faithful unto his covenant by saving his elect. And now he's transitioning to an argument that will lead him saying all Israel will be saved, that indeed there will come a future conversion of the Jewish people because of how the Lord has chosen to deal with them. But in the intermediate uh, verses here, beginning at verse 11, we have some very important discussion which bears some examination. Now, what he's saying here is that there is, uh, there is this reality that we are facing that most of the Christians are now Gentiles. They are those who have come in under the blessings of Christ's inauguration into the world of the new covenant. But how are we to think about the Jewish people? Let's listen as we read in verse 11. I say then... Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. That's how we should think about it. That the Gentiles are to live in such a way as to bring the Jews into a state of jealousy at what they are missing. Verse 12, now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are 
my flesh and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? So track with what he's saying. He's talking about those who have been rejected by God. They have been separated from the blessings of God's covenant by their turning away from the Messiah. And he posits this question. Well, if the, their being rejected resulted in the blessing of salvation coming unto the Gentiles, then surely their inclusion will be an even greater blessing. I don't know exactly what will happen when the uh, Jewish people are one day brought into the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in the gospel. But it's described here as life from the dead. Whatever that may mean, it, it must mean that there would be amazing blessings that coincide to all the world from the Jews ultimately being converted. Now it goes on in verse 12. Sorry, verse 16. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. Now, I want to stop and just explain that. So he uses two illustrations to explain basically the same principle. Basically, the idea is that if a part is holy, the whole is holy. So what are the two illustrations? Well, first is the lump of the first fruit. So the idea there is that in the ceremonial law, during the wave offerings, the very first portion of the, um, of the harvest would be set apart as a special offering unto the Lord. And, and that it would be brought in as a, as a bunch of dough, and the idea there is that the whole harvest is now set apart unto the Lord. So that's the basic principle. But he also uses another illustration there, which is also important. If the root be holy, so are the branches. And what he's doing now is he's transitioning to a different illustration, which is going to take up the, the bulk of what we're going to talk about next. And that is that you have here a great tree. A great, good olive tree. And it has roots beneath the ground and it has branches emanating from the trunk that is, that is above the ground. Now, if you tracked with the argument that I've made here, that it's for the sake of the fathers, given to a the promises given to Abraham, that there yet remains a plan for the Jews, then the idea there is the roots would be the patriarchs. The roots are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the reasoning here is there is a sense in which the whole, the whole tree is holy going out even to the branches. All of those who are part of this great tree. Now what is this tree? What is this tree? Well, let's listen to exactly what he says here from verse 16 and onward, and it will be very clear what this tree is. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump also is holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, 
boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. What is the principle here? Well, you have two kinds of branches. Those that have been broken off the olive tree. Those are the ones who have rejected Christ, have been separated and cast aside from the blessings of God. And who are the wild olive tree branches? Where those are the Gentiles, broken off of the unbelief of paganism and atheism and rejection of the Lord and brought into the covenant community. Believers of every background and nation and tribe engrafted into the good olive tree. I put to you, it's very clear what this olive tree is. That is what we call the visible church. The visible church. Whereas the invisible church, the number of God's elect, cannot be seen by us, for it concerns the purpose and decree of God and the grace of the Holy Spirit. That visible church, that visible confessing people of the Lord, separated unto the worship of God and the truth of God and the word of God, that is what we call the visible church. It is from that visible church that the Lord is pleased to gather his elect people. And it is that visible church which the branches were broken off from. Now we must understand this congregation, if we are not to fall prey to the idea that the covenant of grace only concerns the elect. Yes, as we've said, the purpose of it is to gather his elect But we are now making a very grave mistake if we say that it does not concern all those part of the visible church. If you are part of the visible church, raised in a covenant family, separated unto the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that comes with this moral responsibility that you know that the Lord is a saving God. You know that his son has come to save sinners. You know that if you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. That visible church has a reality to it, has a meaning to it. If you are broken away from it, it is a terrible and a fearful judgment. And if you are brought into it, it is a blessed thing. The covenant of grace, you see, concerns all the visible church, whether converted or unconverted, whether elect or non-elect. This is the teaching of the word of God. Let me complete the argument that Paul makes here. Verse 22, behold the goodness and severity of God and them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide 
not still an unbelief shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And there he continues on with his prophecy that all Israel shall be saved. Now, let me bring this home with a few applications. The main point of my addressing these things has been that we would understand the nature of the covenant of grace. Its purpose is to gather his elect, but as well it comprehends and embraces the whole visible church. But I haven't been able to explain that without also addressing what is the main point here, which is that there is a promise unto that visible people of the Jews. Now, our fathers, they, they wrote much about this. It was even a point um, in the Westminster Larger Catechism in directing to prayer that we are to specifically pray for the salvation of the Jews. I fear that's not so common today. But the reality is, if there are promises here in the word of God that concern the salvation of the physical descendants of Abraham, and that promise is attended not only with blessings for them, but blessings for the whole world, how much should we pray for this? It won't happen through human might, though the Lord can certainly use us as his witnesses but it will be a sovereign gift of the Lord and pouring forth his spirit in revival to the blessings of the whole world. We must pray for the salvation of the Jews in our prayer meeting, in our private prayers, in our family prayers. The Lord will accomplish this and we should believe it and pray for it. But I note this as well. There is a warning here also for us who have been engrafted into the visible church, not to be high-minded, but to fear. How terrible a judgment it would be if we despise the blessings of God's covenant. How dreadful it would be if one of you, having received the light of the gospel, the preaching of the word, and even partaken of the sacraments of baptism in the Lord's Supper, would then depart and be broken off. You know, it affects not only ourselves, but also our families as well. It's a wonderful thing to have your children brought up within the covenant community and the blessings attended with that. But when you see that one generation is broken off, what happens the next is that there's even less opportunity for the saving light of the gospel and the next and the next until there is a total ignorance of the ways of God and of salvation. I think one of the clear implications here is that if we have any love for our own families as well as ourselves, we must take great care that we prize the visible church. And is this which the Lord blesses with the gathering of his people and the salvation of souls? If we despise it, then we are despising God and we will receive a greater judgment. 
I trust that as we've reflected on these things, we've laid a foundation that will help us to understand more about a proper understanding of the sacraments. But may the Lord bless all these things unto our hearts.